Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club. We are well and truly back after what's been a slightly intermittent period of shows. What's been amazing is how excited a lot of our audience have been and how many messages we've had on LinkedIn about the regular week-on-week return of Book Club, particularly now people are commuting again. You've not seen a mic, but Alex and I have seen absolutely loads So it's exciting to be back. It's exciting to be back in the swing of it. And I think it's even more exciting to be talking about what I think is possibly one of the most important books we'll cover in the next few years on IRC Book Club. And today we have one of the authors, Tony Hughes of Tech Powered Sales on the show. Tony, it's your second time on Book Club. You know what to expect. How's it going? Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Michael. I am super excited about being back on the show with you guys. Well, we're excited about having you. So, Tony, just give us a heads up about tech-powered sales. Tech-powered sales is really unique. There's never been anything written like this ever before. And we wrote the book in a way where we knew the thing would be out of date before it ever went into print. Yep. (laughs) But we were actually okay with that. And here's the reality. We've always known that to be successful in life and business and sales you need a reasonable level of IQ. You don't need to be genius, but you can't be dumb and be successful. You then need high EQ. That's even more important than IQ, I think, especially in the world of selling. So you need to understand yourself, how you interact with other people, your ability to read personalities in a room and politics. So you need IQ and EQ, but the realization that Justin, Michael, and I had, Justin's the co-author in Tech Powered Sales, is that today you also need TQ. You need technical quotient. And I might even kick off the conversation for everybody listening to this. Imagine you're walking down the aero bridge at Heathrow Airport or New York or wherever you happen to live. And as you get to the threshold of the aircraft, the air crew member is standing there and asked to see your boarding pass. And while he or she is looking at your boarding pass, you glance to the left into the cockpit and you overhear the pilot say to the co-pilot, hey, look, I love flying. I'm just not into the tech. <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> I would be turning around and getting the hell out of there. Yeah. And that's the reality today. You've got no chance of being successful as a seller if you don't become really good at mastering the tech stack that's going to be enabling you. And most sellers are just nowhere near at the level that they need to be. So, no. you know, old school meets new school is really what this book is about. And we've had the most phenomenal feedback Victor Antonio published a video on YouTube that we didn't know anything about. He actually says that tech-powered sales is probably the book of this decade, as opposed to just book of the year. So I was blown away when I saw that he published that because I respect him enormously. Yeah, and I I read his book, uh, Sales Ex Machina, that he published a while ago, you know, as part of all of my research. So I certainly really respect him. That's fascinating. It's interesting you say that about pilots, Tony, because I'm a keen simulator pilot. And I'm a member of a few groups on Facebook. And you'd be amazed how many full-time professional airline pilots are complete flight sim geeks because they will be accredited for a certain aircraft, but they will geek out on aircraft that they're not yet accredited for because they want to be and they're passionate about flying. And I think it's amazing how many guys you can go on the forum and you can ask a, a question and a guy will come back going, yeah, I'm an A380 pilot. This is actually what you need to do. And it's because they're passionate about the tech. They are. They, they love the tech. They're nerds. And like you say, you'd want a nerd. Uh, yeah. Well, Jonathan, another true story, and this will be incredible for people listening to this, but a good friend of mine is Richard DeCrepney, and he was the command pilot in flight QF32, a Qantas flight out of Singapore to Sydney. And it was the most serious incident in the history of the A380 aircraft. Wow. And it was the closest time an A380 has ever come to a complete disaster. They had an uncontrolled fan explosion on an inboard engine. So it broke all of the protective cowling and it punctured the fuselage 
right? The fuselage, the fuel tanks and the wings, it damaged about 40% of the fiber optic cable trunk line through the belly of the aircraft and the whole plane is fly by wire. Luckily, they were only at about 6,800 feet when this happened. So there was no massive decompression event. If they'd been at 30,000 feet, it was game over instantly. People don't know this, but the fuel tank in the aircraft caught fire. But because the fuel tanks were full, there was almost no vapor <laughs> and it just burned gently and blew out, right? Had those fuel tanks been half full, there would have been an explosion because it's vapor that explodes as opposed to the fuel. Anyway, long story short, it was amazing teamwork on the flight deck, but he's a software engineer by trade. Pilots have lots of downtime and he developed a software company as his side hustle being a pilot. And when he converted from Boeing 747s to the Airbus 380, he took the time to understand the flight law of Airbus and the way the software was specifically designed in the 380 so that in the event of a catastrophic incident, it'd be man and machine It'd be a cyborg effort that would save the aircraft. And that's exactly what happened. He knew the way the automation systems on that aircraft were working and the humans on the flight deck and the computer controls is what got everybody back on the ground safely. It was an amazing, amazing story. And there's a book called QF32. And then he wrote a follow-up to that book called Fly, F-L-Y exclamation mark. Anybody who's interested in flying, should read it. It's just an amazing book about leadership as well. That sounds great. I just want to chip in on this book. What's interesting here, Tony, and you don't really know this, and I guess our clients don't really know this, <clears throat> is that Johnny is bang up for technology. I'm actually really old fashioned. So <laughs> I am. And it, I, I think it's going to, it's true though, isn't it, Johnny? And I think it's going to yeah. be an interesting debate because I've not read it with any cynicism at all. But what I have read it is not knowing much about the stuff yeah. that you're talking about. You know, a lot of it I'm very unfamiliar with. And I think a lot of our candidates, there's a real age split, really. And a lot of it is going to be an age thing between the youngsters are bang into the tech, whereas the old guys aren't into the tech. But then a lot of the old guys, you know, just because they've been knocking around the market a lot longer, earn a lot more money. And they're going to say, hang on a minute, you know, nothing's broke here, so I'm not going to try and fix it. What's going to be interesting is how there's an overlap because at some point the machines take over and, and I think yeah. you said it in your book and I guess we'll get into it. It goes slowly, slowly, really fast. <laughs> and I think we're at that slowly, slowly phase now. Yeah, well, there's, there's always the cumulative effect of small amounts of change that hit a tipping point. And Michael, it's interesting you use the word debate for this conversation because um, last week in Australia, there was an online sales conference for leaders. Uh, about 700 people had registered. Wow. And as part of the one-day program, there was one 40-minute section, which was a debate about, you know, is selling ripe for disruption? So there was a pro and an against side of the debate. Both of them were waving around the book tech powered sales to actually support their case. But I've got to say right out of the gate, anybody who thinks that they're immune from a sales bot-driven disruption of their selling career is delusional. It is absolutely coming. And if you don't embrace technology in your role, you are probably doomed to be replaced by it. And we can talk about that. Do you know what? It's interesting you say that, but pre-reading the book, I'd have said you're talking nonsense, but actually you've got so much reference to so much technology that it's almost been like a, an argument as to why I'm wrong. I've read it and thought, Mike, you've got to be careful here. Because whilst it's not happening now, it's an inevitability that it will happen, actually, I think. Yes, I believe so. What's interesting with me and my Tony is I am a complete technological nerd. You know, people don't know the half of it. And Mike and I make a good team because unchecked, I would go leaping into the technology abyss with complete reckless abandon, spend everything we had <laughs> on automation technology. And the fact that Mike is a little bit more of a laggard, and that's an adjective, not an insult, Mike, it actually just balances out my mental enthusiasm. But what's fascinating is I'm less convinced about the technological car crash that's about to happen. Because you understand how it's a miracle that a lot of this technology works at all. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm sorry to jump in there, but I have to say, 
Johnny, you and Mike are a great combination. You're a great team because you've got someone that wants to embrace technology as much as possible and someone who's quite resistant and old school. And the truth is in the middle, in the middle is where the magic is because there's one category of technology that's really taking off around the world at the moment. And it's a category we describe as sales engagement platforms. Yep. So if you're a Salesforce customer or user, there's a new capability inside Salesforce if you're on Lightning called High Velocity Selling or High Velocity Sales, HVS. And it's a sequencer that they've built in. In other words, a way of sequencing the automated delivery of messaging right? that you push out. Other products that are maybe better known for this would be things like Salesloft or Outreach.io are other technologies that do this. But here's the point of me saying this. A lot of people are using these sequencer tools for automating outbound messaging, emails, and everything else. People are using tools to automate what they're doing in LinkedIn as well. But what's happening is they're loading into their Gatling gun of automation spam. Yeah. And all they're doing is burning through a list badly, quickly, getting their domain blocked and damaging their own brand. Yep. Right. Because, and the thing we know about effective outreach is that if you're driving outreach to senior people, you need to be brief. You need to talk their language. You need to show them that you know them. You need a level of personalization that shows you've done some research or there's good context. And you need to be about how they can drive improved results in their role rather than about us. But to create emails that embrace all four of those things are really difficult and even more so when you automate. And there's a concept that's emerging in tech called liquid syntax, the ability to pull meaningful attributes you know, off the internet or a database and inject that attribute as your way of personalization. But most of the attempts to do that are just a car crash. And an example for me would be someone sends me a LinkedIn email Hey, Tony, I noticed that we both live in Sydney. Would it make sense to catch up for a coffee or a Zoom call? And you go, really? There's five and a half million people live in <laughs> Sydney. Why, why would that be the reason that a conversation makes sense? You know, or, hey, Tony, I noticed that you work at XYZ, you know? Yeah. Would it make sense to have a conversation? Well, no, there's no point of view about why a conversation would matter to me. So that's an example of just grabbing an attribute and putting it in the message thinking that you've nailed the thing of personalization when you have not. So automation is a very dangerous thing, but it's a very powerful thing if you can do it well. Oh, completely. What's interesting about sequencing is, and we do use some sequencing technology, Michael gets probably less positive results than I do. What we found is... Well, I don't use it. I don't. I don't use it. <laughs> yeah, he seldom uses it. What I found is the traditional sequencing, things like a Goji sequence that sort of standard sequence now, I think the customers are very, very wise to already. You know, you mentioned earlier on that the book is probably already out of date by the time it's gone to press. It is, you know, x.ai are out of business, nova.ai are out of business. But what I'm finding is a lot of the traditional sequences, particularly short-term sequences are dead. What we're finding is very long-term, very slow, very gentle drip sequencing really still works if the quality of the data is right and you've targeted at a very niche sliver so that there's an element of personalization therein. I agree with you 100%. The really interesting thing about this book, you know, publishing it and it's already out of date, it's actually still essential reading. Oh, yeah. Because what the book teaches are the principles of being successful with tech. And we say right at the beginning, don't get hung up on the companies that we talk about or the examples in the illustrations because we've made the book very practical. You get a sense of how you can implement all of these things well by talking about specific examples. And we say the technology will continue to change, but what you need to be is you need to be the human middleware yes. of your own mashup of a tech stack, right? And you become the orchestrator of technology because Toward the end of the book, there's a chapter that I actually wrote. So Justin and I wrote different pieces of the book and pulled it all together. And But a piece I wrote is a day in the future of tomorrow. And we talk about a selling scenario. And you read it and you go, this is crazy stuff. You know, like this is very futuristic. When would this ever happen? 
And the punchline of that part of the book is every single thing you just read exists today. Computers today can phone human beings and book a meeting, and the human being has no idea they were talking to a computer. And it was evidenced three and a half years ago with Google Duplex, and they launched Google Duplex. And there was all of this gobsmacking amazement that a computer, right, Google Duplex could phone human beings and in very difficult English as a second language engagements with the other person, bad quality phone line, but the computer's inserting ums and ahs, it's using local colloquialisms, it's having a third attempt at explaining what it's asking for in a different way until it finally works. Human had no idea. When all of that was released, it was amazing, and now it's been dead quiet ever since, right? So there's lots of things going on in the background. Yeah. There's now an amazing level of video bots that can plug into things like IBM Watson. You know, again, I saw an example from four years ago of a video bot selling a person a credit card. Now, the video worker, the digital human that you're dealing with, was a bit creepy, right? But you quickly get past that. It's like when you watch the movie Avatar, right? I can't wait for the new Avatar series of movies to come out. But in Avatar, when it goes from live human action to the animation piece, you're conscious of it, but then you forget and you just immerse yourself in what's going on. So video bots beyond website chatbots are all coming. I think society would be in uproar if uh, computers are doing cold calling and spamming, you know, the human population of the planet mm. at scale. So a lot of this would be legislated against. But the bottom line is every white collar profession on the face of the planet, whether you're a pilot, whether you're a doctor, you know, I went and saw my dentist last week, the amount of tech that my dentist is using, you know, to do his job whether you're a radiologist, it doesn't matter what the role is, a surgeon, every white collar profession in the world is being disrupted by technology. And if you're fearful about your role, here's really the key thought. If you focus on the elements of what you do in your job every day and every week and every month, if you focus on the elements that you could outsource to capable technology to take away the repetitive things, then your role is going to be okay because then you can focus on the truly human things that will never be replaced. So if we think about what humans do well, they navigate politics, they can build a business case, they have a sense of humor, they tell great stories, they can paint a vision for a brighter future with another person, they can help people identify and manage risk, right? All of these things a computer will never do, right? But if human beings are wasting their time, for example, typing up notes from a meeting and then putting it in their CRM, right? Or if they're wasting their time clumsily cruising around the internet looking for trigger events that would give them context for a conversation, they're wasting their time. They should be outsourcing those things to tech, right? So you spend your time doing the truly human things that make a difference and then use tech to automate. And that's exactly what happens with pilots today. You know, the computers are doing all of the navigation they're monitoring all of the systems, oh, yeah. they're warning and telling you about things. You can focus on flying the aircraft and giving the passengers a great experience, right? And you'd be amazed how little flying they actually do. When you get in a big jet, you'd be amazed how little pricey the pilot is actually flying the plane. You know, getting back to the book and something you said a minute ago, I think this is essential reading, whether you're into tech or not, as a seller. Yeah. You sort of got to know what the other side are doing. This is an insight into what other people are doing. Whether you get on board with it 100% or 50% or 20% or whatever, I think if you're there, you know, if you sell ERP software and work at SAP and you're competing against some guy who works at Oracle, you sort of got to know what the other side is doing and what the possible is in order to properly understand it. And it's essential to understand the landscape. It's funny though, Mike, I don't think people will read it. Our audience audience will listen to it. The book club audience will listen to it because they are the converted. they people that care about the craft. Then there's another audience. You know, I've had a bit of a do with this enterprise sales guy last week. He won't read this book because he works for, if you look at his track record, major global enterprise software vendor. He thinks it's somebody else's problem. He thinks his job is to turn up, be good looking and charismatic. But that's an age thing though, because he's in his 40s. So actually, he's a 55-year-old going to get overtaken? No. But is a 40-year-old at some point going to turn around and go, oh my God, what happened to my career? 
because all of a sudden that will happen. So I'm going to be really provocative. I work almost exclusively with big enterprise software companies. Yeah. And I work with all of the brands you've mentioned. So I won't say which brand this relates to, but this is common across all of them. In every one of those companies, somewhere between 40 and 70%, if they're lucky, will be missing quota. Wow. You know, 20 or 30% make it. And people who go, hey, I know how to sell, I just don't have enough pipeline, are deluded about their role. Because if you really knew how to sell, you would create the pipeline you need. Agreed. If you're a big enterprise software seller, what you need is you need to harness technology to give you time back. So for example, if you're running a Zoom meeting with somebody in, you know, in the era now where all sellings become inside sales, because <laughs> it's much harder to get on site and it's going to remain tougher to get on site in front of people, you can just say to somebody, hey, would, would you mind if I just turned on a plugin, just record the meeting for me so I can get a transcript? It'll enable me to really focus on a conversation rather than trying to take notes and listen at the same time. Is that okay? And most customers go, sure. And then you've got software that can transcribe the whole meeting. You've got software that can even coach you in the background about how you ran the meeting. I listened to a one-hour recording of a discovery call three weeks ago for one of my clients. The salesperson for the first 23 minutes did warming up the call and rapport building, if you can believe this. And at about minute 25, the prospect said something that was the very reason why they should become a customer again for this company, right? They'd lost this company years ago. And it just sailed right past the seller, right? Again, AI in something transcribing that call would have prompted the seller to say, that was a buying signal. Circle back, ask about that. So transcribing meetings, getting those notes into your CRM, creating a summary email to send to the prospect. Imagine having a virtual assistant that does that for you. It gives that old school seller time back. But here's the big thing. You can use technology to look for buying intent. I actually say in the very beginning of the book, I say that the future of selling is where buying or buyer intent meets seller relevance and the matchmaking is done by the technology. Because if you can be the right person at the right time, in the right place slash right channel for a buyer, then you've got the shortest path and the highest probability to a sale, right? Some seller who says, I don't need tech, is just going to, you know, pound the phone and blindly send out emails, right? They're wasting time and energy damaging their brand. They want to use tech to monitor for buying intent and for trigger events, right? And for example, you might think, Look, I'll give you another example I talk about in the book. Imagine you were selling Salesforce as a product in the marketplace, and you think my ideal customer profile is a tech scale-up business, right? So they, they might have bootstrapped their business with something like HubSpot, which is a great product, by the way. I love HubSpot. But typically, startups will use something like HubSpot. They won't typically start with a Salesforce. But as they get bigger, they'll think, I need now more feature-rich, capable product that brings all of these different elements around customer experience together. So you go, well, as a seller, my ICP is a tech business that's growing. The trigger event I can monitor for is they did a capital raise. So typically the CEOs raise capital, they've got new investors on their advisory board, they've committed to the investors and board, they'll now drive hyper growth. Now that's your trigger event. So you're phoning up saying, hey, hey, Mary, congratulations on the Series B capital raise. I've got some ideas on how you can de-risk the hyper level of growth that you've now committed to the board and new investors. Do you mind if I ask, where do you see the current risks and gaps you know, with your current tech stack for hitting the growth numbers? Right, you're gonna have a good conversation. You are. Right, because they're thinking, holy crap, you know, I, I need to get better systems now to support all the promises I'm making. So I'm gonna interject a little bit here, Tony. As I went through the book, I made a deliberate point of looking at a lot of the technologies that you mentioned, and I've looked at every single one of them. My issue with intent is intent is signaled by behavior. So for example, you talk about series B or a series C round. I think if you're ringing a client after the series B round has been announced, for example, you're too late. Possibly. And actually my concern is, and Mike and I deal with quite a lot of funded businesses, if you're chasing 
the crunch base announcement of Company X just secured $20 million from Sequoia Capital. Let me tell you, it's like a feeding frenzy of recruiters. And so the art is actually looking at when they had Series A and going, hmm, they need to Series B. I'm going to get all over that. Or not even doing that. The art is just getting all over prospects and finding out, having spoken to somebody, well, actually Series B is coming and that's going to affect how we're going to grow. Yeah. And so I like the idea of the intent data, but I think a lot of intent data that I've seen, and I did investigate a lot of it when Mike and I were doing a bit of a tech stack review, partially inspired by this book, might I add, back in the summer, I just thought every piece of intent data is what we call in the UK chip paper, yesterday's news. <laughs> and, and I just thought, I don't want to buy chip paper. What I want to buy is tomorrow's paper today. And the only way you get that is by actually, and I think sometimes it's as simple as, and I'm counteracting the argument here, Benjamin Dennehy put a great post on LinkedIn last week that said, write a list of 100 names and 100 phone numbers, pick up the phone, get rid of all the tech, start dialing out. And actually, I do think there's a part where the tech gets in the bloody way. And actually, if you put me with 100 numbers or Mike with 100 phone numbers that were accurate, and said, there's a list written on a piece of paper, go for your life, versus a guy sat there using outreach today, me and Mike would win every single time. And we've got a really bloody good tech stack, Tony. And I agree with you because people have stopped using the phone and any silent sales floor is not going to be successful. So we need to get back on the phone. I've got a show that I do called the CEO Sales Insights Show. Right. And I interview CEOs and I say to them, how many phone calls have you had in the last month from a seller? And the normal answer is none. We know. Do you know, it's amazing. I canvas and I think canvassing has been as easy as I've ever known it. Yeah. Like I'm canvassing really senior people, you know, that normally sales leaders, MDs, whatever, uh, get the number off Lucia, call them straight on the mobile. It's easy. People are pleased to hear from you. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. It's easy. So can I just respond, Jonathan, to your point, and it's a valid point. If you look at the sort of tech that's out there that is meant to monitor for buying intent, things like Sixth Sense, Bombora, Albacross, Tech Target, you know, and, and what they're doing is if people are running certain searches and downloading certain things, they go, oh, you know, they're in the window. But the really interesting thing is, is ahead of all of that are trigger events, Right? And the trigger events could be they've hired a certain role in their organization, they've launched a new product, they've opened into a new market. It could be they've done a Series A you know, capital raise in a Series C where there'll be the red ocean shark feeding frenzy of you and your competitors, but you can get in earlier. right? So the thing is to drive effective outreach, no matter what it is that you're selling and to sell strategically means early engagement at senior levels and be the one that educates the client about their business case, how they can secure consensus and manage risk, right? So we've got to engage early. So I think trigger events are much more powerful than these other platforms that monitor for buying intent. Yeah. Because intent data is usually a red ocean shark feeding frenzy. Correct. Where everybody's getting that same data. So I'm with you, right? So, and I, and I would argue that if you get two sellers and they both get a list of 100 companies, maybe with three or four buyer personas in each company, so there's a list of three or 400 contacts, and they both go after that market against each other, the one who will be more successful, assuming their skills are relatively similar, will be A, the person that's having the right conversation, because most sellers are busy having the wrong conversation all about us and what we do instead of the customer's opportunity to drive improved results. But here's the big thing beyond that. The one who's targeting organizations that are more likely to buy, they will be far more successful, right? So if you're using tech to say, if you use lookalike, the concept of lookalike against your existing very successful customers, there's headless browser technologies that can run that can give you a list of lookalike companies based on attributes. And then you think, I know the buyer personas I sell to, I'll now monitor for trigger events to give me good context. You go run outreach using tech to augment that activity, you'll be hugely successful than someone just blindly phoning. Because if we call people and talk about us and what we do, 
at any given point in time, 3% of the market is looking for what we sell, but 40% of the market is open to change if we can have the right context in the conversation. So you can use tech to appeal to the 43% rather than just the three. I want to cover something in the book that you've mentioned. Uh, you talk about COVID, actually. And what you've said is successful business leaders never let a crisis go to waste. They are driven to maximize their own business and shareholder value. And then you talk about COVID and the recession of the 2020s. I've been saying this for a while, and you, you talk about it much more eloquently than I'm going to. But COVID has created this void because of the recession, and then the void is going to be filled by the bots, I think, to a big degree. Just talk to you about your thoughts on that, because I thought that was a fascinating part of the book, actually. Well, Michael, I'm going to tell you another true story that'll blow your mind, and this will be a blood-curdling story for those people you know that think, you know, I'm okay, I'm great with relationships. The bots can never build relationships with sellers like I do. So true story. I'm working with a group of about 30 to 40 CEOs in Australia. I'm talking about my normal stuff. And in the break, one of the CEOs comes up to me and he says, what you said, Tony, is true. He said, let me tell you about our company. Now, he runs the Australian operation of a global multinational. In the USA, when COVID hit, they lost a couple of their field reps, right? They just resigned. You know, this thing of the great resignation in America, but, but they just resigned and they couldn't replace them while COVID was going on. They couldn't get through the hiring process to replace them. They're looking in their reporting systems four months later, and they noticed that sales in those two territories, big high-performing territories, they noticed sales were still growing strongly despite having no rep for four months calling on all of the customers. And more bizarrely, the margins were now the strongest in the entire company. So sales strong, margins went through the roof. They thought, what the hell is going on? So they phone all of the clients. Now, this company provides compounds and the other things you need to make, ointments and medicines for a pharmacist. Right. So they're selling into the, into the drugstore market in the USA and around the world. They ring their customer and they say, hey, we're so sorry we haven't been able to replace Mike, who is your rep. We really appreciate the fact you've continued to do business with us. We'll have a new rep for you as soon as we can once COVID going away allows us to do so. Hey, but do you mind if we ask you a few questions? And this is what they found out. The customer regarded the rep calling on them as an interruption of their day that took them away from serving customers. They also said, because what they said is, look, you don't really need to replace the rep. I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? And they said, but, but, but the reps give you updates? And they said, well, no, no. You send us technical bulletins regularly with all of your updates. We get a newsletter, right? So we get your newsletter. You give us a technical bulletin. We can phone technical resources if we have any questions or concerns. All your rep does is take me away from actually serving my clients. It doesn't provide any value. I said, come on, come on. We spent a lot of money on these people for you. Surely they provide some value. Here was the answer. You ready? Well, actually, yes. Okay, they do. They help me get a discount. <laughs> wow. And that's why, that's why the margins went through the roof. Wow. So the modern battle today is around customer experience, mm. not in having professional visitors that take people's time. Now, here's the punchline of the story. The company goes, wow, wow, wow. What are we going to do about this? I say, well, let's not screw up our most important market in the USA and Canada. Let's run an experiment. Let's pick Australia. So they redeployed, to put it politely, the three reps, the three field reps they had in Australia. And what they found was without the reps, sales have continued to grow strongly. And just like America, the margins are much better. Now, will it stay that way forever? I really don't know. But if you think I'm okay because I provide a relationship, your customers are not looking for another relationship. They want their time back. They want to get home to their families. They want to get their jobs done. They're feeling overworked and burnt out. They're not after a professional friend from sales land. So you have to provide the level of value that funds your role. What are your insights? You almost need to be consultative. What's the point of view that you're turning up with that helps them improve the way they run their business? If all you do is provide information and take their complaints back to the office about the credit that wasn't raised or the product problem, 
if all you're doing is being a messenger, helping someone transact, there's not enough value to fund your role. And we predict in the book that this decade, one third of field sales roles will disappear. Capital is being redeployed around tech stacks and customer experience. So there's a couple of things on that. I do agree with you completely, by the way, Tony. So we place salespeople in AI and in automation and in, and in low code as well, which I think is a component part of that. And I can't decide whether, because those three markets have just been incredibly hot for the past two years, just ridiculous. And I can't decide whether they're hot because they're hot or whether they're hot because COVID has accelerated the uptake of automation and all of that stuff. You know, it's probably a very unpopular thing to say, I suspect, but I actually think COVID has been one of the best things that's ever happened to the IT industry. And it strikes me that COVID has been one of the best things that's happened to the automation market. Do you think that? I more than just think that. I absolutely know that it's true. So, so what's happening in the boardrooms around the world is they're thinking, never let a crisis go to waste. This is a once in a generation, once in a work lifetime opportunity for us to drive change in our business that we could never have gotten away with, never have thought even possible before COVID. Mm. The unions wouldn't let us do it. Our customers wouldn't let us force them, you know, to self-serve on a website. Yes. An example here in Australia is the government department that delivers social welfare and social services to the country is called Services Australia. They've got a program where they are seeking to halve the size of their workforce and the public sector union is going along with it. And the reason they are is everybody accepts. We can't have people walking into government storefronts mm. across counters, you know, spreading germs to each other. We need to help them self-service online in portals, on websites, in apps. And then if they really need to talk to somebody, let's do it over the phone or on a Zoom call, right? Uh, let's be able to interact with people in social media, right? Let's create great citizen or customer experience through all of the channels, this thing called Omnichannel. Mm rather than the dinosaur thing of force them to go and line up, you know, in some government office somewhere. And every business is doing this. They're thinking, this is our chance to change the way our customers and our employees engage. It is, but I think we also have to be a little bit careful. I think there's a backlash coming, Tony. There is. Now, I'm going to give you an example. I won't use the self-service checkout in the supermarket. Why? Because Every time somebody uses the self-service checkout in the supermarket, we give data to the supermarket company that it's okay to put self-service checkouts there, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And what always amuses me is how grumpy the staff are behind the counter to actually serve me. And they're a bit like, you can use the self-service checkout, you know, and I go, no, thanks. No, thanks. And I'll wait. <laughs> it drives my family insane because I'll wait. I'll wait 15 minutes for a human. And now, at some point, there's going to be a backlash, not from the people who are losing the jobs, but I think at some point people are going to go, ah, come on, send me a human. And actually, I think that there's going to be an accelerated moment at which people wake up and go, holy shit, the unemployment level's high. And that's going to become an issue. And people are going to say, whoa, right, you've tried to sell to me with a bot. Right, that email, that was automated. I saw that. I want an email from a human that was written personally. And people are going to get really, I think, very aggressive about it. But by then, I think it might be too late. And the emails will be so bloody good, they'll be hard to tell. But I do think we have to caveat the fact with at some point, you have to have faith in humanity. That humanity is going to say, whoa, look, uh, there's two things, I think. One is, I think a lot of humans are going to say, Nah, yeah, I know we can do a video call, but do you know what? Get in your car and come and see me. I know we can do that. I know I don't need to buy off you, but do you know what? I want to be served by a human. You come and see me. So Jonathan, I agree with you. If we go and look at blue collar trades, you know, you can say, well, is there any future in being a welder? You know, because robots do all of the welding. Correct. But the truth is you, you can be an artisan welder. You, you can be an, an artisan furniture maker. That There'll always be a role for that because human beings value someone who's an artisan. But I really want to challenge you. You know, my first job working in a bank, so I worked as a bank teller. Now, I personally 
love the fact that I have no relationship with anybody at the bank. I never enjoyed lining up at banks, <laughs> right? Like I just wanted my time back. So an ATM, you know, was a great thing. Internet banking is a great thing. Apps are a great thing. Never writing out a check ever again. I'm sounding like a donors even know about checks, right? But but I look at the way banking's changed, and I'm happy that I don't have a friend at the bank. I don't want a friend at the bank, right? All I want is my banking done safely and securely. And if I need to talk to a human, you know, great. And I've got a business banker with my bank that I can talk to on the phone. But I'm not looking to go to the branch to while away my day and have a talk with people behind the counter. I'm 100% with you, Tony. 100% with you. But let me talk about, and by the way, Jonathan, I agree with you 100%. At the end of the day, it's not a decision about can technology do these things that humans are doing? Because if we look at the way we buy music, the way we buy books, the humans are all gone. Now you can go and find a nostalgic record store, right? And you can love and enjoy that experience. There's a role for that. But there are no more video shops. You don't go into a music store to buy music because it's just all changed. Correct. If we think about the rate of change, it was in 1997 that IBM Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov at chess, and that was just brute what-if analysis computing. Yes, it was. It was 2011, right? So that was sort of 25 years ago. It was 2011, just over a decade ago, that IBM Watson beat the Jeopardy champions, and that's natural language, speaking, and abstract context. It wasn't even connected to the internet, and no Jeopardy champion could beat them. It was 2016, so sort of five years ago, that Google DeepMind beat Lee Sedal in AlphaGo. He was the 18 times world champion. And that's the most complex game ever invented in human history. And it taught itself to play. It taught itself to play. Move 37 was this legendary move. But there's more potential options in a single game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. It is insane. And it was sort of three years ago that Google Duplex phoned a human and passed the Turing test. And so again, so for people to think I'm immune from tech because I sell, well, I've got to tell you, buyers don't really want sellers in their life. They just, they want their time back. They want to buy their thing, best value, lowest risk, give me great experience and make it easy for me. And there are situations where humans absolutely play a role, but the best customer experiences and sales processes designed by the selling organizations will inject the human being at exactly the right time where they provide that right level of value. And it will be wise counsel. If you're not providing deep insight and counsel, and if you're not providing something that nobody else can provide, I think people are in real trouble. What's fascinating, Mike, I was thinking yesterday was if you take a lot of the guys that we're on and <laughs> listen, we love the fact the salaries are big. But if you look at some of the salaries that some of the guys were on, 120, 150K basic salary, and said, actually, what would happen if I spent that on tech? What, 150 grand a year? You're going to get a big return, aren't you? Yeah. What if I spent that on lead generation and tech rather than that one sales guy who's nailing me to the floor because his salary's frankly overinflated? I think that it's very close now, the return on investment. Well, the thing that Justin and I believe, and we talk about it in the book, Tech Powered Sales, is you'll have better equipped with technology, better equipped inside sellers that will find and identify the opportunities and create real progression. But then you'll have fewer people in the field that then go through to close. But the value those field people will provide will be far more consultative. You know, they'll be helping build business cases. They'll be helping manage the politics inside the organization, help them secure a consensus, work out where all of the risks are and get it implemented successfully, rather than let me tell you about the product and I can give you a demo and here's the price. And so the value creation in the field, everyone will need to up their game really significantly. And for those selling in the office, you'll need to become much better at how you use the technology. But there is an elephant in the room here, Tony, which is every single client we know has got six vacancies for an SDR and can't fill them. And that's really tough because the average tenure of an SDR is about 14 months and they all take the role as a stepping stone, you know, to being an AE or getting out of sales. Or as a tryout, they just work out. I want to give sales a try. Not that many of them at SDR level are that committed to a sales career. Well, Jonathan, my own son, uh, his name's Joshua. He's uh, about to turn 25. He left uni. He's much smarter than me. He got a double degree. Very, very clever. 
but he did not know what he wanted to do. And I said, hey, hey, Josh, if you don't know what you want to do, why don't you get a job in sales? Because it'll teach you about lots of facets of business and it'll knock all of the rough edges off you. You know, it'll, it'll teach you, it'll cope with rejection. It'll help you improve your communication skills. If you can just stick at that for a few years, it'll hold you in good stead for your entire career, no matter what you want to do. And that's what he did. You know, he found it brutally tough because he doesn't have that driver expressive personality. He's more of an analytic, right? He's more of a sensitive soul. So he had to battle himself to be successful in the job. And he was, he got Asia Pacific rookie of the year in the whole company. So he did well, but here's the thing. He did it for nearly two years and now he's got a job in procurement. So now he's working on the other side because he loves all of the analytical element and he loves working with sellers to actually help them together create value, you know, rather than just try and screw the seller down, right? And he sees all of the cheesy tactics that the salespeople use because he's been on that side of the fence. But it, but it was exactly what you described. He wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and he was glad he did it, but it's not where he sees his career. No. And so that's my only concern is that the tech is driven you know, you look at, I've placed a fellow last week in a job. Now, actually, I think his job, in a way, it's managing a major global software vendor alliance. It's really, really sensitive touch, EQ-driven, strategic planning-driven. It's not actually something you can really automate. It's about having a very good network, etc. But you look at a lot of the sales jobs that we look at now, and I do believe, like you say, Tony, there's a middle section of the sales environment. Anywhere where I think there is a potential for a puppy dog sale and anywhere where I think it's SaaS-driven, 20 to 50K deal value, I just can't see those businesses hanging on to field salespeople strategically in the years to come. But the question is, where the hell are we going to get these inside salespeople from? Because I can tell you now, the kids don't really want to do it. The ones that do try it are only trying it. And the demand is only going to get higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And the volume is not going to increase. Yes. So again, that's a very insightful observation. And we've all talked forever about the passive aggressive relationship and the big gap between sales and marketing in organizations. You know, they, they just don't work well together. The latest attempt in the world to try and resolve that is now the rise of revenue operations, what they call RevOps, right? So the idea is to bring sales ops and marketing all together. It's in recognition of everything is more powered by tech stacks. You've got to be able to wrangle all of that tech and enable your sellers. So not just equip them with the tool, but enable them with how to use it effectively. So you really set people up for success. And if you use the tech well, a lot of what's going on is warm calls instead of cold calls, which means it's not as rejection laden. But Jonathan, I want to go back to the point you made at the beginning where you said, look, I'm not sure that the human beings are going to be ready for everyone to lose their jobs in this area. The reality is if this is a job that people don't want to do and the real game is about creating awesome customer experience, you know, like understand the buyer's journey and map all of your selling and marketing and content all into the buyer's journey, provide them great experiences. Companies are increasingly looking at product led selling or product-led marketing, where the product itself is a big part of the sales process. And you just talked about that. A lot of the SaaS players are doing that. Make it easy for people to onboard themselves and get going. Look, I believe there's going to be fewer sellers. And it's delusional to think that we're just okay. And you know, I'm good at relationships. I've got the gift of the gab. Well, that is not going to make you immune, right? Just look at law, you know, like so many legal roles have just disappeared. I played golf with a fellow the other week in a competition and we didn't really talk about work because it was a match. And uh, back into the match, I said, how's the legal profession going? And uh, he said, I'm so pleased I'm retiring in the next two years. The profession is done. Good friends of mine, the husband and wife, because they met in their industry, they're both pathologists and they've both been told by their employer that they will not have jobs within five years. Wow. Because- pathology is going the way of AI. You know, I nearly dropped dead two and a half years ago. I had a 99% blockage in my heart, in a part of the heart they call the widow maker. 
my heart had been imaged up in a contrast dye CT machine, and the image was analyzed by two expert radiographers analyzing the image. They said I had between a 40 and 60% blockage. I was 99% blocked. Here's the reality. AI, machines, algorithm, they don't have a bad day. They're not hungover. They didn't have just have a fight with their partner. They're not depressed, right? AI drives, AI analyzes images, pathology, radiology images much better than humans. And the thing for me is I want to live. So I'd rather live than protect the job of a human that can't do it as well as the tech, right? Um, so I've really loved this but really encourage people to get tech-powered sales. It'll spark a debate, and that's good. The main thing is that you protect your own career and you make yourself immune from disruption in the profession that's feeding your family and providing your very livelihood. And if you use tech well, we talk about becoming a cyborg. If you work out how you can blend human and machine together in the best interest of your customer to increase the level of value you provide for your employer and customers, then you'll absolutely be okay. You can outsource the things that you don't really enjoy doing anyway yeah. and help the tech to make you more effective. Tony, it's been a pleasure again. Mike and I are big combo prospecting fans and we're very into throwing triples. Still use the triple, Tony. Love it. Yeah. I love Thank it. Thank you. Yeah, genuinely, <laughs> at 48 years old, it was a game changer for me. And I, I rate myself, I Mike rates himself. It's one of the only books on book club we've ever done where actually I'm a better salesman for it. So thank you, and thank you for Tech Powered Sales. We will be pushing this, and it'll be interesting to see. There'll be a lot of debate on LinkedIn about this because I don't tend to mince my words. Well, and, and the good thing is for anybody who's read Tech Powered Sales, the criticism of the book was it didn't have a lot of specific examples of how to apply the techniques. Tech Powered Sales does. Yeah, it does. But the danger in Tech Powered Sales is everybody will start doing exactly the things we talk about in the book, and that'll be the reason they won't work. You need to be the authentic you and apply your own creativity with all of this. Great. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on.